Welcome back to SideQuest episode 41, Final Fantasy VII, episode 25. And back with me is my esteemed colleague and my, my partner in gaming crime, Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back, Mr. Wesley Chance. Hey, good to be back. How's it going? It's going well, and it's good to have you back, uh, especially as our paths seem to have diverged some when it comes to how much we are playing this game and what we are getting out of it, because I continue to sort of do the bare minimum, whereas you, you've already gotten golden chocobos. And so, well, I did do my part this time. And so I went through the Lucretia's cave, and I found that, and I went through the in, insanity of trying to park the sub there, which I found on online is actually quite a bugbear for people many people's suggestion was literally go breed a green chocobo which takes <laughs> quite a bit of time um i did the very difficult um uh uh side quest of going down to the sunken airship gelnica that has the weapons necessary to defeat sephiroth so-called many many very useful weapons for my characters high level weapons and i defeated rude and reno together and then mm -hmm. all those many uh, very difficult boss level um, enemies down there just to level up some. I'm almost to level 50 where Sephiroth was. Right on. And then with Bugenhagen, now having all the huge materia in stow, sto, I, I received Neo Bahamut, oddly enough, not even from the summon uh, materia, but from sort of the, um, not, not, not the command materia, the yellow or the, or the green regular magic materia, but the, uh, I don't know, support materia? Is that what it's called? The blue all yeah. and all of that? Yeah. That sound, yeah, that sounds right. And um, so Neo Bahamut, speaking of long uh, sequences, uh, <laughs> you, you go to outer space and watch him fly around before he charges a Giga Flare, essentially, and shoots it. I gotta not? correct you on that. It's it's Bahamut zero um, because you you have to have Neo Bahamut and uh, the regular old Bahamut to get Bahamut zero. Okay, so, what did I call him? You kept calling him Neo, but oh, that's excuse okay. me. Yes, yes, no. So I of course already had Neo, as you explained. That had to happen in order to get Bahamut zero. Sorry, I was thinking about him, but I suppose I didn't think about him as a loser, as a zero. <laughs> But he rose in very well. He And again, a hearkening back to the idea of Meteor, right? Not only do we have Comet, but now Comet 2. But now we have a creature in the sky that is godlike and drag and is a dragon that can shoot a laser beam down to Earth and cause, for me, like 7,000 point, hit points of damage. But yeah. but still, that, we can't use that to get rid of Meteor. Um, and so that's <laughs> right. I wondered, actually, just to start with that, um, and not even get into Crystal Weapon yet, but that is where we played till until the mm -hmm. fight with him. And you have done that fight, and I have not yet, but I intend to crush him soon with my Ultima <laughs> and Comet 2 and Bahamut 0. Um, but I wanted to ask you about just how overpowered and weird and out of place these summons seem to be, what will be called GFs or Guardian Forces in Final Fantasy VIII. And then I want to talk a little bit about battle strategy down in Gelnica because that was a, that place was a slog. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, as far as the summons go, it, it is a really interesting component to the game to think about. Well, on the one hand, you have these different um, colored materia, like you mentioned, and it seems like the huge materia even sort of represent what in other Final Fantasy games would be the um, four elemental crystals. Yes, right? you get exactly. four, 
we potentially get four huge materia that will sort of hang out in Bugenhagen's, um, you know, cosmic uh, tree fort up there. And, <laughs> and, and, and if you, if you talk to them, you know, you can, you can interact with them and they sort of glow, which is basically what crystals do in all final fantasy games. And they emit a soft light or they emit a, a warm light or whatever kind of light their color and their magic, you know, represents. And, and it is very strange, like you say, when you talk to the, the red one, you don't um, get Bahamut Zero, but when you talk to the blue one, you do. And I don't know quite what to make of that, other than maybe it's just a way of kind of sneaking something in there that's not easy to find, which is definitely the case, right? Like, I don't think I would necessarily um, go around and talk to every single one of the crystals if they didn't do something right away. Like, the blue one's the furthest one away to go and bother with. So if you like interact with a couple of them, most likely you'd be like, okay, well, so these don't really do anything. I'll have to come back later once I figure this out. But actually, right, if you do happen to have um, gotten both of those other Bahamut summons, then this one will, will pop one out for you. Uh, it's almost like, actually in a way, almost like the Chocobo breeding, right? The way that these summons like stack up on one another, these particular Bahamut ones. And um, the, the way that they uh, they like take a long time and they're like very elaborate, I think must just be another sort of um, hearkening back to or or borrowing from the kind of anime um, milieu. You know, it's like this is a major element in the the highly stylized kind of combat sequences that anime in turn probably gets from like old samurai movies and stuff. You know, and, and Wild West you know, spaghetti westerns, maybe, you know, stuff like that, all, all that sort of seems to be in the background where you have these kind of very tableau-like um, fight sequences. And, uh, and, and the summons, they, they make it very, very artistic and dramatic and spectacular, you know, and that sort of connotes, I, I suppose, the, the power of these, these beings, which emerge from the, the life stream in some sense, right? They, they kind of have a little more personality than your typical green or blue or whatever other color because they they have names and they um you know have physical forms they're fantastic but they are sort of recognizable you know whereas summoning a, a fire spell or or summoning a i don't know an added effect materia just doesn't have quite the same robust uh personality as summoning um hades you know which is one of my favorites, personally. <laughs> yes, and I keep intending to use him now that I got him from Gelnica. And that's something I wanted to ask you about next. So they snuck in the crystals here. Here are the crystals that also, also often are the unity, which become the disunity or the multiplicity, the, the diversity or the shattered shards or fragments of crystals that get dispersed throughout the entirety of the world, which you then have to find, which is both a metaphor for... Uh, uh, you know, sort of a Tower of Babel sort of unity changing into disunity, but also an idea of sort of differentiation of labor, sort of a Christian idea, and that all pieces of God are everywhere, and and that that's the idea behind democracy, that you find God not just in the idea of a king, but that all people surrounding you are kings worthy of dying for, which is what you do if you fight in our army. Um, you 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 believe in those rights even more than the people who hold them, oddly enough. But, you know, 
that is what you believe in, and that's very interesting. Um, but I wanted to ask you about that idea that not not the idea simply that they snuck the crystals into this game, which I'm happy about from sort of just you know being a teacher of epics and understanding that you have to include certain elements in in a in a style in stylistically changed, but in some way similar or the same in uh, games that come after the first one in order to maintain a serial line, in order to maintain that connected theme, uh, in order to earn the Final Fantasy name or epic name. But what is it about, what did you think about the idea that the crystals have consciousnesses? How does that relate to what you just said about summons being more personified or more defined in how they express themselves, having more personality? And how does that relate to Sephiroth? Because Sephiroth is himself sort of like a piece of materia now, right? Didn't we see his body crystallized in Mako? So isn't he like a piece of huge materia now? Is he like an evil consciousness summon himself? Is that connected to Meteor? I know that's a lot. I hope you're hungry. That's that's okay. No, I, I think that the Meteor summoning uh, is kind of telling because it does seem like most summon spells are, are supposed to have a kind of personality to them, right? Um, right? They're supposed to look like a recognizable kind of animal-ish fantastic form, right? But um, but Meteor doesn't. It's it's kind of an anti-planet, you know. It, it's and the the planet's persona is sort of alive in the form of of Mako energy, uh, of materia like crystallized, right? Um, of the life stream and and the ancients. And so all of that does seem kind of bound up together. Um, Sephiroth, you know, seems like a kind of uh, anti-type of, uh, of Eris. And so he's, to have him kind of crystallized um, is, is really interesting because in this portion of the game, Eris herself is kind of alluded to, um, and, and you even see an image of her, right? Almost like a summoning. Yes in the background, you know, of the waterfall screen thing. So, so there's something interesting going on there where, you know, the normal summon spells are, are kind of encapsulated within materia. Um, then you have Sephiroth encapsulated in a crystal, you know, form, um, almost imprisoned as it were, uh, an upside down, which is kind of cool. Um, mm -hmm. He has, he has, or his, his avatar has summoned, meteor you know which is not a normal typical uh animal type form right and then um somewhere lurking in the background uh of course is like the planet itself right which which seems to be uh the kind of the <laughs> the dark horse uh in the whole story um you know normally the crystals kind of represent the the planet and stand in for like you know protecting and and, and doing the good thing for the planet right and in this case what that is going to turn out to be is, uh, you know, stopping meteor. But the way that that's going to work uh, via holy materia is is pretty unexpected, actually. And I think probably one of the most interesting things about the game actually is is this whole kind of complex uh, weave of of materia, of summons, of magic, um, and of personalities. Which, yeah, I, I I think that they really develop that a bit more in Final Fantasy VIII with the guardian uh, force thingy, because um, each of those kind of grows you know, in a, a more tangible way and grows together with your characters who use them, if I recall. So I, it's something that clearly they're taking the crystal idea and like developing it into a more personified form, which is interesting given what you've been saying about sort of the, the religious 
and how it kind of gets crystallized in in Christianity and whatnot. Yeah, I, I like the idea you're you're bringing in about Final Fantasy VIII's Guardian Forces, as if as they become stronger, you become stronger, sort of like how Beatrice becomes more beautiful, the more Dante understands in heaven. And if, if you check, and I, I have this in my, my Paradiso course, each time Dante ascends, Beatrice becomes more beautiful. And this is just after Dante has understood by reason, not just faith, that which his divine interlocutors have said to him. And so the idea that one's ideas make one stronger and become stronger, better defined ideas I think is uh, very interesting in that the, of course, the test for whether a, an idea is strong and well-defined is what its output in reality is for you. And so I guess if we take Sephiroth then as the antagonist, as sort of the figure uh, Lucifer, Luciferus here, or the figure of Lucifer in this drama, then he, uh, what is he manifesting? What is he defining in the world? Well, an anti-force. He's sort of the last man. He is a, a force that wishes to negate the planet. And so just something about that and how the planet also acts as sort of a mother like Genova, but a positive one is you called it the dark horse, but it's not the dark horse in the sense that it won't survive. What makes it a dark horse in relation to humanity is whether it will help humanity or not, or let them burn or destroy them with holy, right? It's like a damned if you do, a damned if you don't situation uh, that Cloud finds himself in. He, he now has so little self-confidence in himself after having helped Sephiroth and lived out a lie and let Ares die and been such a loser that he, um, and you know, yeah, living a lie, being a puppet, he, uh, he really wonders whether when they summon holy, which they're worried about if they can even find, it will wipe them out or not. But it looks like, according to Bugenhagen's analysis with its pale green glow, that the, the planet is on the side of the humans, even though that was an open question. Exactly. Yeah, that, that sort of uh, dark horse, what I mean by that is just that it's, it's something that's in the, it's been in the background so far, but right. it's going to become pretty salient here. Um, and I as I was is, saying yeah. it, well, I, I was just thinking of, um, I think Sephiroth has an attack that's called Pale Horse, if I remember right, like the the, the one that carries death, um, which was making me laugh a little as I was saying it, if I recall. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, and he definitely has one called Supernova as well that takes forever. Um, but, hmm, yeah, so... Yeah, that was what I was wondering about. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm sorry there. So uh, what is it about? What is it? Not what is it about man or what is it about cloud? But I guess what is it that you thought about the idea that cloud thought that holy might get rid of man and that holy is not going to get rid of man and that at the very least, there's only an attack from one side, meteor. Meteor might destroy man and empower Sephiroth, but it won't destroy the planet. Um, and so at the very least, there's one way to fight or there's, there's only one battle that needs to be fought. Yeah. I thought it was interesting how, when you kind of, you go back to Bugenhagen to see what he might be able to tell you about huge materia, he can hold on to them for you, but it, it quickly sort of turns where he asks you like, there's something you must be missing. Like, what is it that you, um, are thinking about? What is it that you find yourself 
missing? And of course, the answer is is Eris. And so that sort of shifts the direction of things again um, from this kind of dispersed go collect the huge materia mission, um, which never really tied together all that well. I thought, like we've talked about, but but then it shifts back to this very focused like what is going on with Eris and what is going on with the ancients and um and you have to sort of by exploring underwater find the the key to the ancients before you can really proceed um it's something that you probably will find if you just kind of are are exploring around underwater but if you haven't yet then you'll be kind of stuck at this point because there's like there's this place where you need a key and uh, there's there's really very little in the way of explanation for that. Like it's supposedly a music box, so you might assume it has something to do with like Tifa's house or even you know Eris's house. Maybe back in in Midgar would be like the natural places to maybe look for something like that. But no, it's just like underwater. <laughs> but it's it's very interesting that you know Cloud has this kind of intuition that you know maybe the planet in saving itself wouldn't necessarily save humanity, right? That, that that's a kind of judgment that's brought upon um, him personally, but more like more, more than that, just this, this entire um, world that, that he's, you know, now back a, a part of again, like he, he's been a very sort of unstable character with respect to his relationships with others. And he's finally sort of figured that out. It seems like through, you know Tifa's uh, care and um, support, and and now just as soon as that's happened, he sure enough is thinking of Eris, who's gone, and of maybe what he missed out on on doing when she was around, and you know because he wasn't all there, and and now this possibility that you know total catastrophe is is going to happen one way or the other. Um, the way he's looking at it, you know, he's reassured, sure by. Bugenhagen, who seems to know an awful lot, but um, but as it you know, as it turns out, he's kind of right. You know, it's it, it is a it is a distinct possibility that the planet will, um, in protecting itself, undo a lot of what humanity has uh, has achieved. And so, what do you think about the connection? And I wonder if this was the game developers' intuitive connection between um, Holy falling to the bottom of the water, Ares being at the bottom of the water and being sort of buried in that way, that odd way, and um, the key to the ancients also being submerged in the depths. And so the, the Jungians call the, um, the journey of the hero into the depths based on Heracles' night sea journey. They call it the Nequia, or the dark night of the soul. And... Um, one one in going down into the depths sort of dissolves oneself in alchemical language and then comes out sort of renewed and there's sort of a correlate to this in the story of jonah and the whale and so there's sort of a fight with something down below or you get pulled by something down below that you have to deal with and well oh my god i ran into emerald effing weapon this time and i saw him going around and he caused great terror to me because I knew and I know what Emerald Weapon is and that is the figure of the Gorgon in the underworld because he will kill you if you run into him and he is a serious threat down there and I, I think what that represents is sort of like the trauma of the experiences that um, Cloud must now 
must now uh, find his way through in the depths in order to get the key to moving on and accepting reality as it now is. Just to try a Jungian way of looking at that. Yeah, that's that seems right. I mean, it's like the exploration is by nature for something that you don't really know what it is that you're looking for, right? Like, I think that's kind of interesting. It's only after you find the key, probably, that it turns out to be useful for something, um, which, you know, the old wise man, who's another kind of archetypal figure, right, sort of points out for you, and he kind of facilitates that. And and then what happens is that water pours from above, and it projects this image right. of, a, of a distinct person, right? Uh, again, like back to a, a concrete manifestation of that more sort of vague and maybe powerful in that way, um, but but less expressive sort of yearning or whatever. And so it's projected on this waterfall. It's a very, very beautiful image. Again, not ex especially musical per se, but I can sort of see the music box thing, I guess. Um, I, I've been meaning to bring this up for a while, just to throw it out there. Uh, this game uh, has a very small but, but noticeable uh, Easter egg where uh, it, it mentions some lyrics from the Xenogears um, theme song, actually. This happens, I think, if you talk to Cloud just before or just around the time that he's about to fall into the life stream, uh, when when Ultima Weapon comes to Medial, he'll say a few words uh, which seem to allude to Xenogears. Like, he even says the word Xenogears. Um, and so there's, like, this little Easter egg where the developers put that in. I'm not sure if they were intending at that point to have some kind of tie-in with Xenogears and the Final Fantasy series. Um, if they were, it didn't really pan out that way. Like, Xenogears kind of developed off into its own series, uh, apparently distinct from... Final Fantasies, but but anyway, like that game is really really interesting with respect to psychological religious themes and things, and I think it's one of the more bizarre kind of like suggestions dropped by the game that there's this um, this music box which isn't really a music box because that's like one of the very first things that happens in the Xenogear story is you you find uh, this music box from a, an ancient civilization and it it actually like begins to play and uh and it's just a very poignant moment in that game as well um i think well, it's something, something there i'm not sure what though yeah well you know just the connections of harmonies to each other and so far as these these games and that they are subject to time and thus are reveal certain patterns throughout time also share certain patterns with each other and so two things about that I suggested Zelda Ocarina of Time or Majora's Mask for next time. Maybe I'm just slipping Majora's Mask in. But Xenogears or Chrono Trigger, you know, I think, you know, those are those are also great games and very interesting. And I never actually beat Xenogears, though I did get to the second disc. I just, I forget what it is that happened there. Um, and now I'm also forgetting the, my second point about Xenogears, except for the fact that it would be interesting to play that with you. Oh yes, it's something about digging away at um, the present in order to find the sort of general principles of the world through sifting through the past by observing patterns that can only be observed through direct experience or or uh, direct acquisition of information about experience over time, history, as it were. Um, but that um, 
I played Final Fantasy VII because it was sort of mainstream, but a little weird. I got into Xenogears because people who knew me knew that I would like Xenogears based on what I liked about Final Fantasy VII. And so sort of like in my philosophy career, I started with sort of modern stuff and then moved backwards to find out, you know, about these source individuals who, who were always quoted, Plato, Aristotle, Kant, um, Schopenhauer, um, that guy that Schopenhauer didn't like, Hegel. But um, also I've done that with the epic literature and literature from sort of fantasy literature of our times, like Tolkien, like now all the way back to the Iliad and Epic of Gilgamesh and the epics. But the Xenogears is one of those games that even when we were young, you would have had to sort of like buy on eBay because it was like quickly like a 70 or $80 game and it stayed there, sort of like a legendary game that your knowledge of sort of the gaming world was much greater if you had played Xenogears or, or, or um, even beaten it because it was also considered a fairly difficult game. And just to the, the extent that the sort of common lore leads to the uncommon lore that makes you seen in, as a person or a gamer of a totally different type. I just find that fascinating that that applies even to the playing of games. And it also recalls to me Magic the Gathering, having like cards from an older generation of uh, Magic the Gathering would be, they were more expensive cards and they were more interesting because of that or, and rarer. Right. Those those things are, I think, reflect reflective of that that sort of insight about the way that you know knowledge works. Is it's not like this inert thing, you know, that's like the materia, but it's it the magic happens when you sort of use the materia, right? You like equip it, you incorporate it into your strategy, you understand how to use it, and and it grows as you use it. Like that that seems right to me. That that's sort of what these kinds of things are are showing um it seems like even to the extent that um materia grows on its own it, it seems like it gets bigger over time or like there's some kind of process there of of time like the older the materia is the the, the more powerful or something like that right and the the idea that like the ancients of whom eris is one are sort of the only thing that could stop meteor at this point um you know just sort of reinforces that even more the the way that the uh the mission against um like the the weapons uh picks up at this point is kind of i mean you i don't think it's all that foreseeable because they sort of are just lurking around um like you said emerald weapon is down in the deeps um but uh there's there's diamond weapon who just sort of appears also from underwater from somewhere um really suddenly at this point after you have your kind of nice moment there with you know holy materia glowing down in the in the underwater area and so there there's something about like the the danger of that kind of information you know like trying to incorporate things that are older than you bigger than you more powerful um th there's a real there's a real like struggle and danger that that's that goes along with that um and some of those things are like maybe just too big and powerful to <laughs> to confront all at once uh you right. gotta kind of work your way up and to them you might have to be a lot stronger in order to deal with them like they might actually crush you and we do talk about that right like i'm crushed 
And we do actually know that that comes from like having a serious reduction in your serotonin and that that could come from a terrible realization is certainly possible. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah, and I, I also agree with you about the narrative sort of being not convoluted, which might have been something we could have said about the sort of Genova Sephiroth stuff from the end of the first disc, but almost boring and extremely straightforward at this point. Um, you know, get the huge materia. It's like it's, it's lengthened out. And I don't know whether that's because my gauge for time has now changed because I've been playing the game for so long, but I feel like things were constantly changing that uh, the territory was still unexplored and large and infinite and that time and that things happened faster, whereas things take more time now and we're returning to new or old places now made new and we have full um, capacity to move on land and water with the high wind and the submarine and with you a golden chocobo not I'm not quite there yet but I need to put in the extra effort but that um, things have expanded out in that way and to what extent that that like I was saying last time we were talking shows sort of how consciousness works for a human you as a child try and figure out everything about the infinitude of the world but what being an adult is, is uh, returning to the places of your youth or returning back to those experiences now with an adult perspective, like the high wind as a capacity to freely think and to choose where you go, but still following a coherent narrative. Um, but that now things happen slower, but you have a much bigger effect because like, obviously we are going to defeat weapon. And just a second question to that, if that first bit even was a question, would be, um, what do you think about the fact that we seem to be fighting for the planet, but also against uh, weapons, which are the planet's defense system? Is there something being said there about how like, sort of uh, our conscious mind and our unconscious emotional instincts can disagree uh, can agree about purpose, but not about means at times, or wh what status does that put us in? And where, where also does Shinra figure in all of this? Are they still evil? Are they good at this point? Cause they're trying to kill Sephiroth and these things. What is our hierarchy of evil things? <laughs> Antagonists. Uh, I mean, once that becomes questionable, I think that's also a mark of maturity actually, right? Like noticing that the simple dichotomies that you kind of operated on are are insufficient, um, and and that's well, I think right at this point you're protecting Shinra, but sort of as a corollary to um, this larger goal of of defeating Sephiroth, right, and stopping Meteor. So they they've got um, also you know hostage basically in Midgar. They've got a lot of civilians at this point, which um, Kate Sith, I think, sort of dredges up that whole thing again about, you know, when you blow up the reactor, it killed a lot of innocent people. It's like, well, yeah, that that was a thing. I guess we should remember um, doing at some point. Uh, yeah, okay. But it it's very strange, um, as you say, that you, you've kind of structured your whole quest around um, these things which sort of one after the other become... Uh, become just the the entree to something bigger or something else right like you were fighting against Shinra at first oh shoot now it turns out you're you're chasing Sephiroth you got to fight him so 
oh, you're fighting Sephiroth. Well, now it turns out that it's, you know, Meteor itself that you're fighting against and Genova behind, um, behind Sephiroth, right? And, and like putting yourself uh, together mentally in the process. And so this, this part of the game where you're um, first protecting Midgar and then shortly you're going to have to infiltrate Midgar again, uh, it, it really does sort of um, harp on that, that idea of, of going back to where you've been before, of of confronting things that you didn't really um, uh, have to before, right? And and sort of settling old scores, and uh, especially again, like Kate Sith, uh, such a an odd um, sort of mechanism to to get these things to happen. But he uh, he he is sort of the inside, you know, the insider within Shinra, who's who's been this kind of um, this element in your party this whole time who's who's kind of ambiguous right he's sort of part of your team and sort of part of of the bad guys you know and well uh, finally sort of clearing the air with him at this point and you have to you have to go and rescue reeve who gets captured and thrown in jail so yeah i don't know when i like that perspective on him as because if you look at it from his perspective, he's working for Shinra in order to try and save people. And how does he look at you? He looks at you as a militant terrorist group that he infiltrated in order to keep from doing additional terrorist things, right? Like from his perspective, he's the good guy and he's the one living the double identity like a spy. Whereas, and he's the one taking all the risks because he has to be around Shinra all day he'd much rather be around you, even though you're a terrorist cell as far as he's concerned. And I like that he brings that up with Barrett. He's like, don't forget, you guys, you guys say you have this noble purpose, and I think this is an important thing to keep in mind, but the means that you've taken uh, are unforgivable, whereas you think they are totally forgivable. You think that you are holy warriors, and because of that, you like Cachaguida and Dante's uh, Paradiso, are going to be assumed immediately into heaven afterwards, like you're crusaders. And he's like, no, you're humans. You don't get a free pass for doing that sort of thing. And also you should be aware that these people that you killed were not just evil Shinra spawn of Satan creatures. They were humans too with families. I knew them, you know, they were his employees, you know, and they were his underlings. And so so again, yeah, just to add to what you're saying, that notion of complexity is coming. And what's interesting is that with Cloud being reborn and having use of the high wind, which I've always, I always made the claim that any use of something celestial that makes you move faster is a metaphor for thought. And in fact, even in the Iliad and the Odyssey, the movements of the gods are metaphors for thought. And even in Aristotle and medieval philosophy and astronomy the movements of the heavens are metaphors for thought <laughs> it, it's very heavy-handed and, and you know we're very slow to change our patterns so you know the fact that aliens uh come down from heaven and uh shoot light beams and give us a you know and give us higher perspectives or destroy us is exactly like angels doing the exact same thing so you know we're, we're not that we are sophisticated but not that sophisticated in any case uh just adding to your point that things, I mean, we too could be the bad guys. And that seems to be what Cloud recognized when he wondered whether Holy would get rid of them or not. And that seems to be sort of like the weight of Cain that, that looms on this game. 
it's almost as if what this game is dealing with is how do you move forward in the world when you've done something disgraceful or unforgivable? Um, yeah. Well, yeah, that makes me think about, um, well, what you'll, what you'll see here when you, when you fight diamond, uh, it's fighting back and, and it does rain some destruction upon Midgar. Um, it actually ends up taking out uh, President uh, Rufus up there in the top of the Shinra Tower. Um, so he, yeah, so he's he's toast after that. Um, and and it's it's a the way the game represents that cutscene is is very like uh, very moving because he's standing alone, you know, facing his enemy, and it does a lot of sort of cutting back and forth between. Uh, perspectives, um, but ultimately you sort of um, feel for him as he's there uh, making a you know a proud last stand, basically. Uh, and he looks an awful lot like Cloud, actually, right? He's another kind of alter ego for for you throughout the game. Um, the the Turks are the same way; like you fight them repeatedly, you always beat them easily. Um, that might make you wonder a little bit. Yeah. Like if you're some kind of bully, actually, <laughs> if you're <laughs> doing the right thing by, you know, whooping up on the Turks and, and stealing powerful weapons and armor from them all the time. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're definitely. And their gill. And their gill. <laughs> yeah. Right. They're definitely like, you know, played for laughs at times, but there's also something, you know, a little bit, um, a little bit more, more serious about them, you know, and they, they um, they're in that that underwater, uh, uh, the the sunken ship, right? They're down there trying to get, uh, recover some weapons and things that will will help their cause, right? And they're, um, they're actually, they actually seem to you know really believe in and and be fighting for something. So, uh, Vincent, of course, is is another example of that, right? Like he's a really cool character, and you you see some of his backstory there when you go to that difficult to access waterfall cave right and so he's you know he's he helps to kind of question you at times if you actually you know talk to him he'll sort of be worrying about like his own guilt and his own decisions and that that seems to again kind of reflect maybe what the game is is challenging the player to do yeah and what you can become uh, from what you are, if you stay on a certain path. And that's something too, I wanted to question. So th those become ambiguous too. Uh, who is Sephiroth actually? Now we know he's the son of Lucretia and some scientists. And we also have aspersions cast on Gast. Gast too uh, has apparently, was apparently involved in this human experimentation that eventually led to Hojo shooting um vincent and then cursing him with this body and apparently he shares this curse with lucretia who says stay back twice and then causes all this white to happen i don't know what that means and then she's gone forever uh but apparently still alive and has these dreams and vincent feels the need to lie to her but we have but now sephiroth his mother is not genova it is lucretia but we know that she was injected with Genova cells and now can't die and is weirdly connected to sephiroth even though she's never held him so she has sort of a reverse um, like an empty cradle syndrome, just as he has a um, missing mother sort of Oedipal syndrome going on. But we learn that Genova is not his actual mother. He just has her cells, so she's sort of his mother. Um, she's responsible for many of his gifts, whereas he has an actual human mother. 
And also Gast, who we saw as sort of like a figure of God, just as you were explaining, Bugenhagen, just like Dumbledore, just like Gandalf are, um, is apparently also sort of a malevolent figure too, because he's, he's okay with human experimentation. Yeah, the the sort of science as a nefarious, um, you know, or potentially malevolent force that that's really uh, what we've seen from the start with with Midgar itself, right? It's like this kind of blight on the landscape, and um, Shinra is evil primarily because they are destroying nature or, or sort of degrading um, quality of life in pursuit of this kind of um, Promethean urge of theirs, right? So, yeah, and, and uh, inevitably, um, Gast, yeah, is going to be uh, sort of this this questionable or at least ambiguous uh, kind of character, um, since you know he he like Cloud has has failed to protect the person he loved, right? That seems to be a big a big problem. <laughs> um, for, for anyone. So if Gast has failed at that, then, then we need to probably question some more about what he, what his decisions were and, and where his, um, his issues were, because like that, uh, that seems to be Vincent's thing. That seems to be Cloud's thing. Um, that, that seems to be basically like behind, you know, Barrett losing his friend, you know, that, that's sort of, that's sort of the dark side of, of being, you know, this kind of heroic, playing this heroic role is you're responsible. And so if you fail, then it's on you. Like you've, you've done it. Um, Cause you, that, that was your job. That was your responsibility. Um, yeah. And that's you events is living with a hardcore here. And, but I want to ask you what happened exactly when I, and again, it happens in Nibelheim, right? He's mm-hmm. with, and that, that manor at Shinra mansion plays another big role, uh, which makes sense because that's where you find him. But mm-hmm. he, he seems to be prote- protecting uh, Lucretia. And of course, you know, her name is based off of the, the very famous rape of Lucretia from Roman times, um, mm-hmm. where uh, I believe it was a, a Roman noblewoman was mm-hmm. taken by uh, a Roman man. And that was, that was too much. It led to uh, something serious. I, I'll look it up and get some more details for next time. But it, it was a big, big problem. But um, she seems to be holding the hands then of Reeve, but then they sort of break hands. And then she's with Hojo, and he says, as long as she's happy. And do we even know that's Hojo at this time? And what, what happens there exactly? What, what goes down? That, is, that seems to be the, the dramatic sort of um, cliffhanger here, right? Like, it seems like Vincent probably knows, uh, but but we don't actually, I, I don't, for my part at least, I don't actually know based on what we see in those kinds of memory flashback things, um, what exactly happened. I think basically in in that mystery is the, the mystery of Sephiroth's parentage, I think. Um, right. And, and yeah, it seems like it's an open question whether it's Gast, Hojo, Vincent, who is um, who is Sephiroth's father here? Uh, which again, yeah, seems to be kind of the Oedipal, you know, thing, um, or maybe just like the human condition of of always kind of having that hanging over you. Like, who's your father? Can you live up to your father? Those are sort of intertwined uh, questions. It seems like. 
Right. I mean, that's certainly a major question in the epic tradition. What uh, <laughs> Athena straight up says to Diomedes when she sees him waiting back, tending to an injury of his is, you're no worthy son of your father, Tidius, though he was a short man. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, um, in this case, uh, Sephiroth has has his own sort of issues about living up to something, which is what we saw with Cloud for such a long time too, like living up to Sephiroth. It turns out that that can just be taken a step further back, like Sephiroth having to kind of seek his identity in this, in this weird way. Um, it, it's, it does kind of generate uh, a, a bit of pathos um, in, in addition to whatever, you know, the main course of the storyline has been making you feel so far. Well, that also makes me think that that's sort of the burden, not only of Epic, but also of Final Fantasy, which is what Final Fantasy is modeled after, right? Or any series is modeled after the Epic series, the golden chain, the ultimate in quality of transmission of information about a culture, um, maximum accumulation of information. And so that's what Final Fantasy has had to do, right? Struggle against the judgment of the past, the dead past, the other six Final Fantasies that came before it. But then after sort of attaining to that level and being able to be judged uh, by its own merits, it has to develop its own identity. And I wonder to what extent Sephiroth and both Cloud are figures of how the game has to sort of figure within the series, but then develop its own identity, sort of like a person within a family, like Ron Weasley within the Weasleys or a finger on the hand. Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that there is definitely that, that aspect to it. I think that kind of takes us back to the original question about the summon spells and why they're so elaborate. You know, it's like that's, these, all these are ways in which the designers are trying to go above and beyond, you know, make something more spectacular, more cool, more uh, wonderful, you know, that, that will suck you in and, and make you want to keep playing and it's 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 really interesting uh the way that that like is is conveyed through the gameplay right as well as the story itself um and i think you know seeing the mako canon uh <laughs> it's just it's just over the top like sister uh, ray please yeah, sister yeah. Ray. oh man yeah it's wonderful stuff um and uh, you have you have some pretty sweet cutscenes to look forward to there, since you still got to fight Diamond. Well, that is interesting. To what extent the magnificent is a part of the expression of art, and one of the parts of the expression in epic art, which we get through those epic lists, like in the Iliad, the catalog of ships, or the catalog of chariots, and people who show up to the war at Latium in in the Aeneid, Virgil's Aeneid. And so, you know, we get these giant super weapons and we have this super meteor that's going to destroy us and Sephiroth with this six foot long sword and this giant uh, Freudian cannon that's going to shoot these super lasers. You know, it's a, yeah, it's very much like the sort of Dragon Ball Z uh, taking an episode or two for one character just to charge up so that the attack is considered all the more grand, like the the summons, like you said, that do somehow, some way get even more elaborate in Final Fantasy VIII until I think they, they sort of hit their breaking point there. That what is part of an art and storyteller, storytelling and masterful art and storytelling and also perhaps the story of human progress 
is that we're always going above and beyond the generation before, always making something bigger, and but based on the same structural principles. It's you're showing me sort of both the conservative element by that we the model our movement into the future based on, and also the sort of liberal, free, or new creative element as well. And that a serial series that is based on uh, being a part of something larger than itself, but also having unique games that have unique storylines and characters sort of shows that to me as well. Like a embodiment of a new epic tradition, because this is also the uh, height of technology from its day of entertainment and transmission of narrative and development of conscious sort of problem solving in the young, even more so than listening to a blind storyteller sing it. <laughs> That's what I kept thinking about as you're talking was the, the sort of performative aspect of the, the, the Homeric uh, epics, right? Like, for all that we have this amazing technology now, um, really, it remains just as hard as it ever was, or maybe even harder to actually um, commit to memory uh, or be able to um, spontaneously kind of reproduce, if that's how it worked, right? Those those many lines of poetry, those thousands of lines of poetry, and perform them on the spot. Like, that's as hard as it ever was. And I think that's what I'm kind of seeing in the way that, you know, material works in the game is like, it's it's going to be there um, for anyone who picks it up. It's a matter of, of their capacity to use it, you know, and, and that sort of remains just as difficult for each new individual or each new generation, um, no matter what kind of scientific progress you might make, right, with, with your Mako reactors and, and what have you, you're still gonna have to kind of um, uh, face, face the, uh, the, the meteor summoner, whoever it might be in this generation, right? Like you're gonna face them uh, on your own uh, at, the end of this, at the end of this game. Um, and that's, I, I think it's just, yeah, such a, a cool way to kind of conceptualize um, art, but but also you know the the sort of your your growth as an, an individual or or the growth of the the culture um, that that those elements remain just as as pertinent as ever. Well, and that's amazing too because you essentially we we acquire all the huge materia and rather than Shinra who tries to use it, we don't try to use it. That never even occurs to us to use it. We just let it sit up there in heaven with Bugenhagen and his as you called it. Uh, Cosmo Canyon tree fort where he looks at the stars and teaches you how to look at the stars yourself and maintain that apparatus as if you are to him what Harry Potter is to Dumbledore the agent of God in the world and he seems pretty forgiving of you with his old ancient age um, but I also wanted to pivot to how even even one strategy in battle can change too. And this is sort of something we talked about last time, but I wanted to mention that when I was down in Gelnica, because it was still difficult for me to fight against each of those enemies, and it is good fun. I've now, I now approach fighting in a way I never did when I was younger and which I would have considered a drag, but I now like setting up this strategy. I have one character cast Reagan all. I have another one cast um, um, this cloud, um, slow all on the enemy or enemies and then the next the next attack will be something like I cast barriers on my characters and then I cast haste on everybody so that I hopefully am getting something like four attacks to one on the enemy 
And just being able to set up such a robust attack in defense is just, it's very pleasant for me. And it allows me to cast as many uh, Bahamut zeros, Ultimas, or Comet twos as I want, which is always very wonderful. And that's something that I just never would have done when I was younger. I just wouldn't have had as sophisticated a game plan. I wouldn't have enjoyed it. I would have just tried to, to fly through which is interesting because I saw myself even trying to do that earlier in the game. And so it's as if the game has had the same effect as it was supposed to uh, when I first played it, which is to help me develop more sophisticated solutions um, to problems uh, through making the problem so difficult that my strategies have to become more sophisticated. Though, of course, it doesn't have the same impact that it once did, which is another point I want to make about it where I say, Final Fantasy VII cannot stand against the great epics, but I uh, I think I might have to save that point until our last episode. Yeah, right on. No, that that I think is is an interesting um, kind of talos to shoot for here. Uh, for as we are kind of coming to the end of this this series, I I had one or two quick things to throw out there in response to just hearing the word Galnica again. I don't know if this is the case, but it might be a weird. Um, distortion of the word uh, Guernica, Guernica like the, yeah. the city that was bombed by Franco, you know, his yes. own his own people. Um, that's possible. I don't know whether that would hold up a, to a, a linguist or whoever. The other thing I noticed in this part, and I don't know if you got there yet, as Kate Sith is, is talking, at weird times, he slips into a really different um, dialect, almost, accent, like represented by his uh, his speech pattern becoming a lot more uh, sort of folksy or, you know, like informal. It, it seems like it sort of pops in and out from time to time. And and when Reeve gets captured, they say something like, um, you know, they could tell because he was talking funny or something. Like, watch out for that when, when you see it. Like, I don't know what's going on with, with Kate Sith and Reeve's language here, what we're supposed to be, like, getting from this whether he's, you know, um, sometimes speaking, um, like, genuinely in, the, in those moments when, when his accent becomes, like, more, uh, I don't know, informal or whatever. It's, it's a, it just, it stuck out at me, and, I, and I'm curious about it, but I don't know quite what to do with it, so. Very interesting. Yeah. Interesting. So he has, like, so potentially as a regional dialect that he devolved, that he's, he's consciously repressing, yeah. except times of great emotion or stress when he's really got to get the message out and those are moments that because he's speaking in his true tongue you're more likely to trust what he's saying that's interesting i haven't noticed that so i'll have to maybe i'll have to throw him in my party (laughs) it doesn't make a difference whether he's in your party uh it's just for the purpose of the story i think yeah okay okay well i'll have to talk to him as often as i can then all right well is there anything else that we should discuss for this time we're getting we're moving fast i i can't imagine that we have that much more to do before disc three i again i i have sort of a a blackout on what happens after this i think we have to beat weapon a couple times and Uh Uh and then and then pretty soon the north cave again right it's like uh that's about it. There's a few side quests there to, to do, but um, pretty much we're coming up on the last kind of act of this, of this whole this game. So yeah, it's exciting. 
Well, that's incredible. As we revisit old things and new, maybe we'll be able to track down our own Vincent and bring him back from the dead. <laughs> I would hope so. Oh, boy. That sounds good. Yeah. We'll have to find whatever particular Shinra ma- mansion he's living in the basement of. <laughs> <laughs> oh, golly. Oh, man. Oh, good old Ridgely house. Yeah. <laughs> yes, another... Yes, uh, truly a mansion of human experimentation there. Um, <laughs> whether for corporate interests or not, we don't know. We'll, we'll see in the future. Well, in any case, another, another good piece of work done, and I do have a lot to say soon about what I think the value of video games are, but the piece I will add is that I think that their, their profound value, unlike great literature, and this will be the hypothesis we can consider and disprove or prove as a as we find it to be correct or as reason finds it to be correct regardless of what we personally think is that i think video games are made for children and there are some things that uh, indicate that they will have massive impacts on kids and that is very important but that uh once you're an adult if you're you know if you're still devoting yourself to games in the way that you once were as if they are religious texts then you you've probably missed the point that the game was trying to teach you um, and that no amount of arguing is going to make that truth any less, you know, only arguing against that truth will make it more and more bitter. Um, and, you know, I think that is an important, 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 important thing to discuss, um, especially if it's true. Yeah, that's, that is very provocative. I like the sound of that. So something else to look forward to. Cool. Yeah. Something to look forward to. All right. Well, thank you again, Mr. Wesley Shantz. And uh, to what extent we'll be damning ourselves? Well, you know, whenever you look at your culture, yeah, you know, we are, uh, the yin and the yang is made up of little tiny yin yangs. And that's what we are too. Yes. Yes. I think as far as, you know, at least looking at it and trying to discern those things, that's, that's at least a start. Yeah. Right. Well, That's the best we can always do. Always starting at the beginning and ending there too. All right. I think we can.